Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening. Welcome to episode 0000103 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. Um, thank you to Nari for looking after the show last week from all the way up there in Minjin. She did a fabulous job as always. I enjoyed my week off. I went back up to Yorta Yorta country and spoke to some elders about some goings-ons up there. Always nourishing for the soul. So I've come back revitalised and ready to push on. So tonight on the show, I'll be joined by two deadly Aboriginal academics who will talk us through a couple of issues that have been floating about during my absence and over the past week and a bit. Shortly, I'll be joined by Professor Sandy O'Sullivan. Now, there's been pushback by elements on the right, namely the Assistant Attorney General Amanda Stoker, who doesn't like the term anti-racism, and she certainly doesn't like something called critical race theory. So we'll speak to Professor Sandy, who is an expert on CRT, critical race theory, and the culture wars surrounding that. So they will guide us through those issues that um, in and surround that particular part of our culture wars that uh, just keep going on and on, have infiltrated their way into the Australian Parliament. So it's important to look at these matters because these matters are now being addressed through particular ideologies at the heart of our democracy. So when terms like anti-racist become controversial, it's well worth looking into and finding out more about that. And in the second half of the show, you may have heard that the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority, ACARA, announced school students across the country will be taught that First Nations Australians experience European colonisation as an invasion under proposed changes to the national curriculum. Now, this has the potential to be a watershed moment in the telling of true history in this island of ours, on this island of ours. So we'll speak to Dr Emma Lee. She's an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander research fellow at the Centre for Social Impact at at Swinburne University of Technology. And we'll have a yarn to her about whether the proposed changes actually cut the mustard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now, the last five years or so since the former reality TV show host and 45th President of the United States, who shall remain nameless on this program, ran and actually won the presidency, we've seen a rise in culture wars attacking the notion that America still has race issues. Uh, At the centre of the 45th Smoke and Mirror show was the idea of American exceptionalism, the idea that America is the greatest country on earth, merit actually exists, and the greatest nation doesn't have a problem with race issues. Now, predictably, here in Australia, the unimaginative in the conservative movement have parroted the 45th attacks on notions of racism, and in in particular, the idea of critical race theory. There has been a growing opposition to terms like anti-racism, and that has reached the heart of the Australia, Australia's democracy when Assistant Attorney General Amanda Stoker forced the Australian Human Rights Commission to temporarily pull a tender aimed at enhancing an existing anti-racism program called Racism, It Stops With Me. 
She forced them to do that over her concerns that it was using taxpayer funds to promote critical race theory. So when I expressed my incredulity on this matter on Twitter, I think it was last week, I found myself in the middle of a thread with people that are far more learned on this subject than me. And one of those people is our next guest. Professor Sandy O'Sullivan is the co-vice president of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association. Professor Sandy is a Wurundjeri transgender, transgender, transgender non-binary person. They've been an academic for approaching 30 years, and I'm very pleased to have the professor on the line now to talk us through some of these issues. Sandy, thank you very much for coming on the mission. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Let's start at the very beginning of this. What is critical race theory? Uh, look, um, I think in answering it, it's worth asking that question of why people had such a problem with it, because basically critical race theory is really just understanding the role that race plays in how our people are treated by the system. Yeah. It's really just understanding, uh, pointing out inequities according to race, um, which a lot of people understand, actually. Yeah, I, I mean, hosting this show, I could have easily called this show, Sandy, the, the, critical, the critical Race Theory yeah. Hour. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it seems, seems to me that there are a growing number of people that understand that uh, generational trauma, that uh, colonial systems have been set up over time to actually uh, repress certain elements of the community and Aboriginal people being one element of that. Um, so what is the problem that um, well, people have with it? Yeah, it, it's a bit strange. I mean, we're talking about conservatives and we're talking about a conservative government, but actually we've got a closing the gap framework that's run by the government that's been supported by conservative governments since it was introduced. You know, this whole closing the gap thing identifies a race-based gap in health and well-being and education and access to services and you know, just about every area. Um, it's in the name, right? Closing, closing the gap. It yeah. recognises a gap. Um, so it's really strange in that way to kind of contemplate that organisations that actually do this work, I mean, they've got a racism that stops with me campaign that the government has supported. So clearly they see its equal opposite, which is the sort of idea of racism needing to be challenged, you know, and yet they're there challenging the idea of that challenge. So I, I'm not sure that it's really for any very good reason. And there's no easy way to kind of unpack why someone has a trouble with it. But, I mean, in thinking around what critical race theory does, it, it is basically helping us understand what these the challenges to, you know, equity in the system is and what makes it so hard for our people to get ahead. Yeah. Um, you know... Honestly, in terms of critical race theory, a lot of it's slamming academics and a lot of it's slamming Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander academics. You know, I can't think of too many who aren't using critical race theory in their research, whatever their area is. You know, you've got wonderful leaders like distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson who's written about it really essentially, and then you've got people like Debbie Bargali and Alana Lenton who just wrote a wonderful piece in The Guardian that actually addresses this issue of what, what happened with uh, Senator Stoker. It's really worth a read. But you know, you look at, at uh, I mean, just some fundamental things, and you raise it all the time, Daniel. You know, you raise it all the time in this program. But, you know, it, it, it's some people clearly find it hard to believe that race plays a part in how people are getting ahead, and that's clearly what it is. Um, but 
I mean, racial inequity can come in a lot of forms. Like, how many people, how many of our people do you know that have their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents with the kind of money to help us out when we want to put a deposit down on a house? Like, I know, I left school when I was 13 and I'm 55. That was really common for my generation. I went back to uni, but lots of folks didn't. Yeah. You know, lots of people were excluded from the education system, didn't make it in there. And then we know about poor health outcomes. Um, and, you know, we've got these amazing people. I think about people like Associate Professor Chelsea Wadigo, who's done this remarkable work in not just thinking about health and access, but thinking about the impact of racism. I mean, that helps us to understand that so that we can all challenge it, because surely there isn't anybody in Australia who doesn't want to challenge racism. Well, that's 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 why I, I just express my incredulity, which is a word I struggle with, Professor. Um, that um, that that would appear in our parliament and some and some an organisation like the you know Australian Australian Human Rights um, Commission would be forced to take back a tender on a racism campaign that uses terms like anti-racist. Surely, can't we? all just take as a base that we it's a good thing to be anti-racist? Yeah, you, you, you brought it up um, when you brought up the issue of Trump, you know. What yeah. we had with, with Donald Trump was somebody who started to talk about um, Antifa, you know, anti-fascist. And the idea of anti-fascism being a bad thing, I'm pretty sure fascism's not a good thing. Well, right? How many, how many Americans know. gave their lives fighting, anti, <laughs> fa- fighting fascism in, in World War Two? The, the Second World War was about that, that's right. And yet there was this whole counter-narrative that was developed by people who really were... It wasn't their best interest to maintain racism within the system. And, and that's what we have to fight, you know, and it's the work that we're doing in fighting that. And I don't think this is the work of academics. I think what we're trying to do as academics is to, to help... Um, everybody makes some of these arguments, you know, is to recognise the work that's happening across communities. I think about people who cross over both community and academic work, like Amy McGuire, Alison Whitaker, who've mm. done this remarkable work on challenging the overrepresentation that we have in the justice system and, and deaths of our people in the prison system and in custody. It's just out of whack with the rest of the population. That's important work. Yeah. If, if we're not doing it, if they're not doing it, who is? You know, um, and so, of course, we need to do that. And uh, what do they think the Australian Human Rights Commission does <laughs> if, it's not, if it's not challenging ways that, you know, equity isn't available? Like, you know, it's pretty fundamental to say that people want to have equality. You know, equality is pretty, is pretty stock standard, right? Well, it makes, and, makes, and, me, and, makes me think, Professor, um, what, what do people that, you know, fundamentally oppose things like critical race theory, what, what does their world look like? What do they want the world to look like by opposing um, complex conversations like this that challenge preconceptions of things like merit? What do they want the world to look like? I think they genuinely believe that if you work hard enough, you can get ahead without realising how much easier it is for some people and how much harder it is for others. I mean, I think they genuinely believe it, and I think often it's informed by their own experience. You know, they, they've, they've done okay, you can do okay as well. And sometimes they'll then use people, uh, you know, who are successful, like you and me, 
as examples of people who can somehow rise above it in great big inverted commas. And it's kind of, uh, no, sorry, that's not a thing. You know, this is, it, it, you know, equity is actually about everybody having the same levels of access. Um, to the system and levels of access in the system. It's not people having to work 10 times harder to be able to get ahead than somebody who basically has stuff given to them or where it is just fundamentally easier because this isn't always as simple as having a lot and having none. It's often something far more nuanced than that. Like, it's, it's more complex than that. And that's the problem is that they don't want to have these tricky conversations. They're not hard. Like, these aren't hard conversations to have. It's not hard to say everybody should be um, equal and there should be equity. You know, that's not a really... Uh, uh, that's not a complex thing for people to understand. You could say that, you know, to your average four- or five-year-old and they'd get it, you know. Um, so, so certainly people who are challenging this have to understand it. They don't believe it because they're still fundamentally believing their own worldview, you know, and that worldview stuff, it's really, it's a tough nut to crack. But, you know, this racism that stops with me campaign and this, and this, um, you know, that, the anti-racism work that they were trying to do through the tender was actually trying to do some of that work, and that's why it's so frustrating. You know, honestly, it is just incredibly frustrating because it doesn't take a lot to get people to see that, Actually, all of these ideas about success and advantage can kind of slip away. And so many people saw it. They saw it in 2020. You know, they saw it happen even if they weren't affected by race. And if they were, they were affected even worse. And people were witnessing that too. Well, let's, let's, let's take one local example. I mean, I think the thing that, that blew the opposition away in terms of uh, critical, you know, opposing critical race theory in the US was, of course, George Floyd's uh, murder. Yeah. Um, let's, let's, apply, let's apply that to, to the local context. What could um, the opposition to CRT mean for society's ability to understand something like black deaths in custody, for instance? Well, what it does is it takes away any um, connection at all with um, the underlying reasons why, um, you know, there is overrepresentation in the first place in the justice system, let alone um, the issues around bias. Uh, and I know a lot of people will use the term um, sort of implicit bias. I mean, bias is bias is bias. We all know what bias is. We've either experienced it from others or we've done it ourselves and we know how it can work and it can make you just more sympathetic towards people who you understand. And, you know, that is really dangerous. It's dangerous when you've got people in power who are making decisions about people's lives, you know. And if we've got no means to be able to call that out, which is part of our job as academics, mm. in fact, I, I think it's my only job as an academic to do that is to call it out, but one of the ways that we do it is to, you know, the word theory has been the tricky part of the critical race area. Right, yeah. You know, people go, oh, it's a theory, it's just an idea. Well, of course it is. Everything is just an idea. Like, you know, saying the word people is an idea. But the whole idea with theory is that it helps you, be able, you know, it's just saying there's these things that are connected together. So this idea with critical race theory is that it, it explains or it helps you understand how race has an impact on access, on equity, on how much people can get ahead. It doesn't do something more. It's not 
you know, trying to understand what forms race. Um, sometimes it is, but that's not, you know, its main function for your average person. You know, what we're really trying to do is to work out what's the impact, you know, and why is it like that? And then to trail that back. Like, we can't do it without history, right? You know, you've, you've got Dr Leon talking about this. Um, you know, if we don't are able to talk about our history, um, if we're not able to talk about our futures, you know, then where are we? You know, what are, what, what are we doing here if we're not able to um, actually participate in changing a system that isn't working for a really large group of people? And in our case, you know, it's a group of people um, that, you know, have been absolutely structurally disadvantaged through colonisation. Um, you know, without question, actually, it's there in a whole lot of the, the close the gap. Again, I come back to the yeah. government's own documents. They signed up for the it. Gap. It's there. And they signed up for it. They signed up for addressing it. They signed up for owning it, you know, and, um, and there needs to be some kind of, you know, response, I think, um, to... So the need for, you know, so the work that really comes out of CRT, because CRT, critical race theory, is a theory, but the action comes out of understanding that. And it's the actions out of critical race theory that matter. You know, it's how you change things. Um, it's how you make things better. Exactly. I mean, we have a whole range of theories that apply to uh, the physics and we know they are theories, but we know that the actions that fall out of those theories are tangible and they actually impact our everyday life. Um, it is 25 past seven. I'm speaking with Professor Sandy O'Sullivan. You're listening to a program called The Mission. We're trying to unpack Australia right now, the two of us. Um, like, you, um, like you mentioned before, um, Sandy, I've got uh, Dr. Emily coming up um, in the second half of the show, and I'm speaking to her about um, the proposed changes to, to the curriculum to... I guess, get a clearer view in terms of teaching school students around the country the true history of this country and the fact that Aboriginal mm. people saw colonisation as an invasion. Do you mm. think that those changes will make um, a, a, a lasting impact as we move forward from here? Yeah, of course they will. Look, you know, the one, the one thing that anybody who's, who's worked in this, in this field, who, who's taught um, students in education, taught students uh, uh, across the the curriculum in universities, the one thing that, that students always say is that they wish, they wish they'd heard about this in school, you know, that they felt like they didn't understand. And, you know, it's not to do whatever the fear is that people have around this, which is some idea that somehow um, that there is going to be um, some massive shift in their world um, but in fact, what we hope happens is that there is a massive shift in their world and the way that they're thinking about this. And it's what students say. Like they say time and time again, I, this has just changed how I think about the world. And they don't, um, they don't come out of it depressed. They come out of it empowered. Because that's what you do if you know something. You know, the most important thing is, is people being able to know. And students feel that. They get energised by knowing. Uh, by that act of knowing, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. You know, it's really important that people have that and that they have the knowledge to be able to, you know, move forward no matter what their area. It's like, you've got to start with kids. And, yeah. I mean, kids will tell their parents, you know. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, process, you know. It really is. But, I firmly... you know, it will also... 
Sorry. Oh, sorry. I, I firmly believe the next uh, generation um, is the one that's going to be able to get this. And so, you know, the the, the announcement that that's possibly going to be included in the curriculum from here is um, something to be celebrated. Uh, you were reflecting on um, your journey and my journey before, Sandy. I can say I got here to where I am um, through a great deal of luck. And if you don't realise that uh, luck plays yeah. um, something in life, then um, you probably would be opposed to something like critical uh, race theory. But Sandy, thank you so much for your time. Academics like you, black academics, um, do a tremendous amount of work informing the broader community. You don't just confront the, an echo chamber, you're, you're willing to take criticism and speak to the masses about very complex and nuanced um, uh, issues. So um, thank you to speaking to our audience tonight about this. Um, we'll get you back on the show sometime soon because, well, just frankly, you're fab. <laughs> and you are too. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Now on to our second guest of the evening. Last week it was announced that school children right across the country could learn about the impacts of colonisation and invasion in their classrooms for the first time under proposed changes to the national schooling curriculum. The Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority released draft changes to a broad range of subjects in the national curriculum, including English, science, math and humanities. The changes stem from a review by ACARA Indigenous, from the Indigenous Advisory Group, which found outdated ideas did not reflect for truth-telling and inclusive language, including broadening terminology to First Nations Australians as well as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. I have to say my initial reaction to the broadening of the curriculum around these matters was one of extreme excitement. So I thought I'd ask an expert on the show to see if that excitement is based in reality or is it just wishful thinking on my part. Dr Emma Lee is a Trollway woman from the um, from Terrabooka country in northeast Tasmania. She's an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander research fellow at Swinburne University. She has a list of awards as long as your arm, given your arms are long in the first place. And being an esteemed Aboriginal academic from Tasmania means that she has an informed and lived experience on the need for teaching of true history in this country. And I'm very pleased to say that Dr Emma is on the line now. Emma, welcome to the mission. Oh, thank you so much, Daniel. Hello, lovely listeners. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm sure some of them are actually lovely. Um, <laughs> first of all, um, what was your reaction to the announcement from the Australian Curriculum and Assessment Reporting Authority on this matter? It, it was just absolute joy. Oh, relief. Um, anxiety is gone. And over the top of that was this love for all our elders and um, Indigenous educators who have fought so hard for so many generations to get these changes in. It's, it feels like a brand new day in education in Australia. Well, that's the way, that's, that's the way I felt about it too. I, I kind of see it as a, as a watershed moment, and it's right. You, generations and generations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been campaigning for, for these sorts of changes for years, just trying to get true history out there into Victorian schools, to um, Australian schools, and to um, uh, the years of young minds for a long time. Do you see this as a watershed moment? Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. I mean, 
when you think about it, I mean, I look, I'm Aboriginal Tasmanian, and so when I went to school, I was told that I did not exist. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel very close to these changes. <laughs> you know, and I mean, it's not even that long ago, um, perhaps 50 years, that in Queensland, the education system, that if um, uh, non-Indigenous parents objected to Indigenous kids in school, then those kids were removed from schools. So when we think about the magnitude of change in the last two generations, to get to this point where we say, you know what, actually, there might be two ways of knowing Australian history. Mm. And, and I trust, I trust Australians that they can look at, at multiple stories and, and see a truth for themselves that they can say, oh, my goodness, we didn't know. And, and for me, decolonising work is about grieving together the things that we have lost. And so it is, it is um, extraordinary for Aboriginal people. We are well aware of what colonisation has done and created traumas. But for other Australians, to be able to recognise that They've lost out on knowing us mm. and knowing our history. But there's a lot of sadness there. And so from Indigenous educators, we're creating this safe space that we can learn together without blame, but with a, an eye to future belonging. I think um, I was, I was going to ask you, actually, Emma, you know, your experience growing up in Tasmania, what were you taught in relation to, I mean, you, you said that, you know, you were taught that you didn't exist, um, which is clearly wrong. But what were you taught around, um, I guess, uh, colonisation and uh, the, the, the so-called achievements of the first settlers and the first contact between Aboriginal and uh, Europeans? What sort of things were you taught at school around that? Well, 30 years ago, I have the strongest memory of a history teacher telling me that I could not exist because Governor Arthur uh, was more successful than Hitler in a campaign to wipe out peoples. Um, that's shocking. That's one way of framing it. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It is. And so then when we have... Uh, books on our curriculum like HG, War of the Worlds, where the Martians come to it, you know, uh, invade us. And HG Wells, when he wrote that in 1898, uh, wrote the introduction that that book was actually a metaphor for what happened to Aboriginal Tasmanian people. Right. And so it's, you know, it's very hard to fight against a global perspective when you're one tiny little voice in a classroom. And so I, I see these changes and, and I cry with a sense of relief that Aboriginal Tasmanian children will never, ever, ever have to go through, you know, experiences of what our peoples have gone through. I think, I think one of the great things about these changes, Emma, is that um, in our lifetime, hopefully, we will not hear the excuse for much longer that we were never taught these things at school. We didn't know. We, we don't know what what the issues are. And that, you know, is something that the likes of you and me and, and the people of my generation and the generations before have come up against time and time again. So it will take, hopefully take the load off Aboriginal people of all ages to not have to explain to um, uh, people all the time 
the true history of this country. Hopefully, it will feed its way into the collective consciousness of of Australians as as we move forward. Are you hopeful that that's the case? Well, absolutely, because because we have to remember that that invasion stories are only one part. There's sixty to seventy, eighty thousand, maybe forever thousand years stories of caring for country. And that joy of being able to connect to our land and seas in Australia, uh, I'm so looking forward to what the next generation of young people are going to do. I really am. (laughs) It's good to hear the uh, excitement and enthusiasm in your voice. I think uh, that's being echoed in a lot of uh, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander households at the moment. Now, as with all these things, uh, Dr Emily, we're likely to see some pushback here from certain elements of the media and circuit, certain elements of our academia. Do you anticipate that that pushback is going to be um, uh, ferocious or is it something that we can deal with? Oh, gosh. Any Aboriginal innovation has always had ferocious pushback, hasn't it? Yeah. Really? <laughs> I mean, that's just the same old story. But what I love about this is, is out of the Uluru statement, we have voice, truth and treaty and this truth-telling, you know, goes together with the work that's going on around Indigenous voice at the moment. Yeah. You know, there's such a, a collective effort on so many fronts here that education in and of itself can't be looked um, in a silo anymore. That this has to look at a broader landscape of change that's happening in Australia at the moment. And so, look, oh, you know, I mean, it's, it's tedious and tiresome, but I do welcome that pushback because, once again, we can demonstrate our legitimacy again and again and again. <laughs> I think one of the exciting things from a Victorian perspective is that we've got the government committed to the Uruk Commission now, which is a truth-telling commission, um, around the, the treaty negotiations that will take place in the not-too-distant future. And I'm just imagining to myself of all the particular, all the potential curriculum um, items and teachings that can come out of that process alone and feed into the, to the curriculum. The same would be said if uh, the federal government committed to the Uluru Statement, would it not? Oh, absolutely. But again, I think it's fair that we take a staged approach. I mean, you know, once again, uh, First Nations people always have to bear the burden of others catching up. But at the same time, if we're doing that and people are coming to us with a spirit of openness and uh, wanting to learn from, you know, our living archives of knowledge, our elders and our cultural process, then I think that's worth the wait. And I think we build our house together. We build this relationship between um, First Nations and other Australians so that it is an equal relationship of caring for each other and caring for our stories. It is 13 to 8. Uh, you're listening to The Mission. I'm speaking with uh, Dr Emily, who is deadly. Now, um, what are the chances of this actually happening? I mean, the recommendations at the moment, um, but what, what are the actual chances of this actually finding its way into the curriculum in the not-too-distant future. Do you know anything about the mechanics of how these things happen once the Australian Curriculum and Assessment Reporting Authority uh, recommends something like this? Is it usually a fait accompli that this finds its way into the curriculum or is there work still to be done? Oh, there's always going to be work to be done um, to to get a a cohesive curriculum and all teachers up to scratch to be able to 
and share that space, make sure it's a culturally safe education space. That's the key, and isn't so, it? Yeah, it is. You know, so many teachers are already doing this. Yeah, we have to remember that's it. true, isn't it? They're already doing it. You know, this has come from grassroots. And so, you know, what, what the recommendations are, I think that's just a hearing from what's coming up from communities on the ground. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating. As you said, there are so many people uh, in the teaching profession around the place that are using resources that uh, Aboriginal writers and academics are, are putting out there. Uh, like Professor Marcy Langton's Welcome to the Country is a great guide that can be easily applied in a whole range of uh, educational settings. Uh, so in many ways, this is just a formalisation of um, a movement that's already taking place. Absolutely. And, and the point that you made that, uh, about a welcome to country is that First Nations people want to welcome other Australians to our knowledges, to our connections, to our law, to our culture. Um, and so it comes from a place of, of, of belonging to each other. This, this isn't about First Nations pointing the finger and saying, I told you so. This, this is a, coming from a place of saying there's harms that affect both of us on different levels. And let's heal that. Let's, let's honestly make Australia a, a, a nation where we can recognise the past. But that doesn't necessarily define what our future is. It's, uh, we take that knowledge and we build good relationships out of it. Well, we can't have a collective future unless we recognise that we have a collective history together as well. So um, hopefully this will put an end to uh, the us and them to a certain extent. That's a utopian thought, of course, but it's um, this announcement is a step in, in the right direction. Now, before I let you go, Emma, one last important question. What's the weather like in Broome? I'm Tasmanian, so I don't understand 30-plus degrees in Celsius. Maybe Fahrenheit? <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, lucky you, lucky you. Well, I know. Thank you so much for your time. Well, you make your own luck as well, but thank you so much for your time um, this evening. Um, welcome back on the show anytime you like. Um, thank you, Dr. Emily. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>